Hi, Carla. Thanks so much for coming on to chat with me. Thank you for having me, Alicia. I really enjoy your newsletter and these weekly recordings, and I'm honored to be here. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Absolutely. I grew up in Weymouth, Massachusetts, which is a town, a suburban town on the coast of Massachusetts, about 20 miles south of Boston. It is, you know, sort of tongue in cheek referred to as the Irish Riviera. And the, you know, the people that I grew up with were primarily of Irish and Italian descent, uh, working class, you know, with parents who were members of local unions, etc. And um, as I grew, it also became a much more diverse town and absorbed many of the other immigrant communities that are in Massachusetts today. These are communities of Cape Verdean descent, uh, Southeast Asian, Cambodian, Thai, Vietnamese. Um, Haitian, Brazilian, and more. And so I grew up exposed to all of these different kinds of foods. But I also had the really unique experience of generational food knowledge that was passed down. Both of my sets of grandparents were people who grew up during the Depression. And I grew up hearing stories about, you know, my grandfather being unable to stomach turnips any longer after needing to eat almost exclusively turnips for years during the Depression. I also grew up with a grandmother who, you know, as soon as she was legally allowed to work, became a baker in her small town in Vermont and learned to really deeply appreciate the local foods of Vermont, which in many ways is, you know, a place that that championed local foods before local foods became like a, you know, a buzzword of the moment. And she then went on after marrying and having children to being the lunch lady, the exclusive provider of lunch to a New Hampshire elementary school where she needed to cook from scratch uh, over 200 meals every day. And so, you know, through her, through my other grandparents, I learned a lot about, you know, what local food meant in New England, what class or food scarcity had as an impact on food. And then my own parents are big hippies. And so I grew up always with this kind of, you know, this thoughtfulness that they put around everything. You know, they were always reading about something, trying to expose uh, us to, to different things in our lives, trying to get us to think about what was what were the stories behind what we might be consuming, uh, trying to get us to think ethically as moral actors in the world. And so, you know, most of my diet as a kid was, I would say, relatively vegetarian. I've gone on to become mostly vegetarian, vegan in my adulthood. Um, and, you know, there was all of that. All of this was also colored at the same time by what we had access to on the South Shore. So a lot of the food that I ate was from Shaw's supermarket. Like, it's what was there. And, you know, I can remember Shaw's cakes as even still are nostalgically some of my favorite cakes to enjoy. They come with like a, you know, 80% shortening frosting. And I can remember lots of Cheerios for dinner. 
And, you know, once I was kind of old enough to operate in the kitchen safely, I would make mac and cheese and broccoli on the side for me and my brother, you know, stuff like that. So there, there's a, a long, I think, complex food history that I was lucky to be introduced to by people who were really thoughtful about it. Um, once I became a bit older and spent more time with friends, I also, through them, got introduced to the foods of these many different immigrant groups in New England, things like linguiça, uh, you know, sweet Portuguese bread, uh, pão de queijo from Brazil, all kinds of different Cape Verdean or Haitian dishes, um, and, and really got to, to have adventures through food. So for someone who spent, you know, well into her 20s, all of my life within about a 20 mile radius, food was in a lot of ways how I would explore and get to know other people. Right. And how did your interest in chocolate come about and how did that lead to your founding of the Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute? Right. It actually came out of my interest in food to begin with. I, When I graduated from college, I had the unique opportunity to travel to Cabo Verde, which is a small archipelago off the west coast of Africa. If you can kind of locate Senegal on the map, just look to the west of that, and that's where you'll find Cabo Verde. And of course, I had grown up with many Cape Verdean peers. And what I was doing in, in Cabo Verde was teaching English. I was also, at, for a time, working with the singer Cesaria Evora, uh, who is, you know, one of the, the biggest kind of cultural exports of Cabo Verde. And as I came to learn more and more about the place, I also came to know a number of people who had spent time as conscripted laborers, uh, basically under Portuguese rule, covered as a former Portuguese colony in Africa. Uh, people had been found to be indigent or delinquent under Portuguese law if they were unemployed. And they could be more or less forcefully sent to go and work in commodity production and other Portuguese colonies. One of the primarily primary places that people were sent was to Sao Tome and Prince, uh, two small islands also off the coast of, of West Africa, closer to Angola, so further south than Cabo Verde. And what people were put to work doing was growing sugar or growing cocoa. And I became really entranced by the story. It was the kind of thing that that shocked me. I, I hadn't been aware that things like this uh, happened a lot in, in these contexts. And I also became really confused about how it was that people were making their way back and forth between Cabo Verde and Sao Tome, and even realized that many of the people coming back from Sao Tome were disabled by the work that they had done, uh, were left impoverished, they had existed in a type of indentured servitude or a debt slavery in Sao Tome. And many of them, of course, remained in Sao Tome uh, and began to receive pensions from the Cape Verdean government, which was something that really just blew my mind that one government would be sending pensions to its diaspora in another country to support them. And of course, I was thinking to myself all along, this was for sugar and for cocoa, you know, these two things that we don't necessarily even need. You know, how could it be that these things that I had always uh, loved as luxuries or, or sweet things were were underpinning or were held up by such 
problematic labor conditions. I then returned to the United States and entered graduate school. And I was in a program for African and African-American studies and was one day at a local Whole Foods in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I picked up a chocolate bar from Lake Champlain Chocolates that advertised itself as of a Sao Tome origin. And I had it, I liked it, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I then went to Formaggio Kitchen, which is the place that, you know, it's the kind of elite specialty grocer in the Cambridge area, and found another bar that was actually made in Sao Tome uh, by a chocolate maker known as Claudio Corallo. And I just became fascinated by this idea that here were these products being advertised to American consumers as of Sao Tome's cacao, as something that was supposed to be interesting and flavorful and fabulous, but there was nothing being said about that complex uh, production that went on behind the cacao and the labor. So that really drove me to try to learn more, to better understand what was going on in the supply chain and try to really dig into it. Fortunately, in African and African-American studies, you know, this is a discipline that provides us with all of the tools that we need to really analyze something like this. So I began digging in. I was writing my dissertation about something else, but I, I started focusing more on cocoa and chocolate, exploring all of these things. And uh, once I graduated, I had the opportunity in a postdoctoral position to create a class at Harvard called Chocolate Culture and the Politics of Food, which turned out to be one of the university's most popular classes. And it became clearer to me that one of the ways that I as an educator might draw people in to look at things like the history of slavery, of colonization, of inequality in contemporary commodity production might be to basically bait them with chocolate and then switch upon arrival to talking about these tougher issues. As I did all of that, I also found that I was repeatedly being approached by people in the chocolate industry who were saying, you know, we see that you're teaching about this. How can we learn about this? I was tweeting at the time. I was blogging. I was putting out a lot of information about what I was learning. And industry members were saying, you know, how can we basically get on this learning train? And that's when I was inspired to start the Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute. I was actually advised by my mentors at Harvard, if you want to do these things and make them more publicly accessible, one way you could do that is through starting a nonprofit organization. And so that was in 2015. I founded FCCI. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. And I knew from the very start that I didn't want to do this kind of public facing work as a lone ranger. I wanted to do it in community. And FCCI has become a way of basically building a team of like-minded academics and industry members who want to do education and research on the cacao and chocolate industries and who want to communicate about them differently. And we do this work now in a variety of different ways. We do it through educational programming for professionals and for consumers. We do it through research and we do it through a lot of community building and communications activities. Um, you know, historically, this has been through in-person lectures 
lectures, classes, events, and more, publications. But of course, in this COVID-19 moment, we've also been able to really prioritize a lot of uh, multimedia communication, and that's become a bigger focus over the past year. Right. So you you founded this institute kind of in the, the I, I would, I, from my perspective, like the peak of the craft chocolate boom in, in the US. Um, how has chocolate, how has the chocolate industry changed from your perspective, if it has at all, since you, you founded the institute and, and now? Yeah, it's, you know, in some ways it hasn't changed at all. In other ways, it has changed a lot. Um, if we look at the industry as a whole in the past, you know, 10 to tw even 20 years, it has gone through a reckoning in being forced to really deal with some of its biggest challenges. It's been forced, for example, to address things like forced labor or the worst forms of child labor, to address things like deforestation, uh, the variety of different kinds of sustainability buzzwords that the industry is not really allowed to ignore in its work. At the same time, time, exactly as you said, the craft chocolate movement has gone through a large expansion. You know, when it really started in the 2000s, it was a very, a handful of Lone Ranger type chocolate operations. Um, since the 2010s, this number has grown exponentially. There are now more than a thousand companies that fit within this kind of small scale chocolate making category uh, globally. And that are really pushing the envelope on what it looks like to source cacao and also to produce chocolate in an artisan fashion. That, I think, has shown that more than just uh, a kind of experiment, this is, in many ways, a viable option for business. There are increasing numbers of businesses that are growing and expanding. They're not growing at the same rate as, say, craft beer or or other specialty categories, but they are growing, they are learning a lot about how to interrupt the status quo operation of the chocolate industry for centuries. Right. And the words that are used in chocolate, you know, fine craft, specialty, artisan can be challenging for a lot of people to understand, you know, when they're trying to buy a bar of chocolate. How do you define those? And, and what do you look for in a chocolate label? Totally. Well, you know, they always say when people are hiring somebody, an HR committee will only look at a resume for like however many of seconds. Right. And I feel like that's what getting a chocolate bar is for so many people and that that's also very justified that you know for very few people in this world can grocery shopping be a leisure activity or a hobby or like for me an academic practice um so it's, it's completely justified. The system is set up such that people find it difficult to understand these different categories. So for anyone who's confused, I just feel like it's important to say that you're justified in your confusion. <laughs> the system is designed this way. And so often what I find helpful to do is to think about two separate industries in our minds. So one is cocoa or cacao. We use these terms more or less interchangeably. The other is chocolate. 
So these are, uh, there, there is one kind of supply chain or value chain that links these two different things, but the way that sourcing and production happens is really quite different between the raw material, cacao, and the finished product chocolate. So let's just focus on chocolate since, you know, consumers are often focused primarily on that. It's helpful then to think of two different categories of businesses. One is chocolate makers or manufacturers. These are the people that take the raw material cacao and they do things to process it, to turn it into chocolate. So there's quite literally starting with a bean and taking it to a finished product. Then there's another category of people called chocolatiers. Chocolatiers take pre-existing chocolate. So somebody already took it from the bean to chocolate and those chocolatiers turn it into other things, bonbons, truffles, barks, etc. They're sometimes derisively referred to as melters in the industry, if that helps people like think about it. There's nothing actually wrong with working in this way. In fact, it's a very profitable and helpful business that uses up lots of chocolate, which uses up lots of cacao. There are many bonuses to this. Now within that, there are different categories. So 99% of the chocolate that is out there today fits within what is loosely sort of a chocolate, uh, broadly construed industrial chocolate, etc. category. And much of that chocolate would actually properly be referred to as candy. You know, um, we're speaking now in October, we're coming up on Halloween, and you know, 99.9% percent of the Halloween candy in the world is produced by three branded retail manufacturers. So when we talk about candy, when we talk about industrial chocolate, this is an enormously concentrated value chain where power and wealth are captured by a very few. There's also another category of chocolate that is premium chocolate. And premium chocolate gets called it because it gets a price premium. That price premium is really coming about based on a perceived value that's somehow different than chocolate candy. But the way that I think of as, as helpful to understand this is premium chocolate is in many cases just candy wearing a fancy costume. It might be, for example, a Hershey's product that that has royal purple and gold and that goes on the shelves before the holidays. It might be a lint chocolate bar that also, you know, looks as though it's in a more expensive packaging, but is still probably made in just the same way as most industrial chocolate is. Then Within premium chocolate, there are categories known as craft chocolate. That's a category that's drawing its inspiration from craft beer and other artisanal foods. Fine chocolate, also a category that is focusing on artisanry and more. And then a much lesser used term, but probably the most academically accurate term, which is specialty chocolate. Now, within all of this, we also then need to go back to that first category that we talked about, which is cacao or cocoa. Within this, there are ideas about the quality of the raw materials beyond just the quality of the finished product. So we also have categories like fine flavor cacao and specialty cacao. Fine flavor cacao is defined in many ways as sort of genetically superior 
to other types of cacao. Specialty cacao is defined as cacao that receives a price premium based on its perceived quality. And so there are certain chocolate companies that are making chocolate with these so-called better primary raw materials. They're also trying to produce an artisanal finished product. And all of that is leading them to this idea of being fine craft or specialty chocolate. Now, I know that that's a huge mouthful and <laughs> far more than the average consumer really should have to parse. It's a huge burden and it's unfair. Uh, the industry itself is still struggling to even agree on these definitions. Just take, for example, craft chocolate. Craft chocolate is a divisive term even today. It is primarily used in the Americas. There are many companies in Europe, you know, this old world we could call chocolate companies that are making products that look really similar to what these bean to bar small batch craft chocolate companies are doing, say here in the United States. But these European companies are loath to be lumped in with craft chocolate. They see themselves as doing the grand cru, you know, vintage style wine version of chocolate. And they see craft chocolate companies in the United States as doing this kind of, you know, cowboy, uh, bold, you know, messy flavor operation. So it's it's dicey even within the industry. Right, Does right. that some of what you're hoping to better understand? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that yeah, it's just so interesting because I do think that chocolate is an entry point for a lot of people to think about supply chain issues, trade issues, um, you know, the role of slavery in the past and in the present in, in food production. And so I think it's it's just so rich. I mean, obviously, you know this, <laughs> but like it's it's just so, um, yeah, I, I always think it's an, a good entry point for people. It was certainly my entry point to trying to think about these issues. And so I'm always so curious about how it's evolving because it is such a uh, expansive and, um, you know, j the, the world of chocolate is so vast that it is it is often difficult to get a grasp on. So uh, it's it's of course, it's a, a thing that uh, you know, through your the institute, like it that is a necessary, like such a necessary um, thing to exist because of how confusing and uh, this whole world is, you know, and and you know that people don't know what to look for, even if they want to make better choices. And what you're talking about in terms of confusion and how the you know basically the entire food system is set up that way to confuse the consumer. Um, you know, Amen. I think I I talk about this all the time with people where, you know, it, it shouldn't be the responsibility of, of people, you know, going to the grocery store to like really dig in on the labeling and, and figure out where their food is coming from. Like the food should just be, you know, well, <laughs> well produced and, and there, there shouldn't be all these ethical landmines everywhere in the grocery store for people. Um, I, I talked about this with um, people who study um uh, the cattle cattle's effect on soil because you right. know that's of course a huge issue and yeah it's it's just it, it just shouldn't be the responsibility of the consumer <laughs> and it's so hard to, to talk about all these things yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, so what I often try to tell people is, you know, basically you're set up to more or less fail. What would be the ideal is, and I'm so in agreement, Alicia, is that, you know, this 
basically, if you go into a store and you buy food, you should be able to be assured just in buying it that it was somehow good for people, the environment, the economy, etc. Um, that is not a guarantee in any way. And so, you know, for people who need just a basic guide, there's kind of two categories of where you can find chocolate. One is, I would say, grocery writ large. So this is, you know, grocery stores. This is like uh, pharmacies. This is, you know, pub- sites of public transportation, like airports, train stations, etc. The vast majority of chocolate that you're going to find in those places falls into this kind of industrial chocolate or even candy category. And so the way that I approach those is I flip the package over. I look to see the ingredients. You know, I often hope that the first ingredient might be cocoa or chocolate liquid or something like that. If it's sugar, that's okay. Just be aware that what you're then getting is sugar that is flavored like maybe milk and chocolate, not necessarily uh, a cow, you know, focused product. Um, you know, so evaluate those ingredients and see if they fit with you. And then it is better, in my opinion, to have some kind of sustainability certification at this point in time than not to have one in that type of grocery chocolate. It, you know, customers need to be skeptical of these certifications. They don't, for example, solve all social problems that exist in value chains, but they do provide a a greater degree of traceability or information about the conditions of the production of those raw materials than anything else. Then the other area where people can go and find chocolate that's been really growing and that I hope will uh, will grow uh, even further um, in, in basically in, in people's understanding is this specialty category. And that means that like specialty markets or even at individual retail outlets of these different chocolate makers or chocolatiers that are working in this space. And that tends to attract the customer that is looking more for a flavor-centric product. So that requires uh, an interest in things like origin, like flavor, like uh, the conditions of its production or the artisanry that went into its production. Um, buying, you know, wine at Trader Joe's versus wine at a specialty wine shop. It's, you know, it's it's different categories of what people are looking for and what kind of information is necessary to explore those categories. Right, right, right. And I've, for this, you know, conversation series, I guess I can call it, um, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who work in independent food media, traditional food media, but not a lot of, you know, food studies, um, people. And so, you know, I'm curious how food media is perceived by someone who's working in academia and and critical food studies. Like how, what is the role that food media plays for people doing this work? Um yeah, I was on an NYU like food studies panel last week and it was me and just food writers and I was it was funny to just be watched by people who are like really digging in and studying food and and we're like but we're the people who communicate about these things to the public and 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 you know, we're maybe not necessarily as well-versed, you know, like we're always looking for academics to talk to <laughs> about, about issues. And so, um, yeah, just how, how is food media perceived by, you know, in your work and, and right. how do you use food media? Yeah. 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 Well, no, it's so interesting because I see food media as part of the bigger microcosm of just media and academia in its most kind of elite and insular guide. 
uh, issues a lot of media, but I am much more kind of an applied or public focused academic. And there is a, like a large number of us, there are, you know, there's a, a new generation of the way that people think about this that see media as essential. Um, at the same time, both academia and media have gone through the, the very heavy process of privatization, the casualization of labor and more that has profoundly impacted what people are able to do, what they're able to say, how they're able to, you know, make money and survive while also trying to do the important work that they aspire to. And so I see that as a big interruption on both sides of this fence, if it is, if it isn't, is a fence. Um, so for me, food media is a regular part of my reading or listening or viewing diet. Uh, it's essential for kind of keeping up with what people are thinking about. Um, it's an essential way also to hope to communicate some of the, you know, the much more, I would say, complex, lengthy, wordy uh <laughs> different types of, of work that's done in academia. Um, and so I would never, I guess, presume to say that I know the different challenges that people in food media are facing and the things that they do. Um, that said, there are a number of things that I think would make academics' lives easier who study cacao and chocolate if food media, uh, like people involved in food media were to keep them in mind. They right. would be, for example, you know, approaching the study of cacao and chocolate or the, the writing about it, you know, the making of multimedia materials about it with the same seriousness as one approaches anything else would be really really helpful. Uh, you know, chocolate is this area where we, the, the biggest kind of pop culture character that we have is Willy Wonka. It is <laughs> silly in our culture. It is seductive. Everyone, is, you know, it, it happens to me all the time. People really think like it's great. It's an escape, etc. However, it is just as much a part of the real world as anything else. And so approaching chocolate, it, you know, while also celebrating the things that we love about it, but approaching it with that kind of seriousness would be really helpful. Beyond that, you know, chocolate is this kind of, uh, I would say, like poster character, uh, as you described earlier, for understanding value chains or, you know, getting one's head right about the ethics of value chains. Um, but a lot of what is said today is still profoundly racist. It is still profoundly anti-African. It is still profoundly ignorant about the history of slavery, contemporary labor practices. Um, it's also often couched in very Western understandings. So a lot of what people say about chocolate comes out of what they understand about wine. But wine is often being grown by white people in white places. It is, you know, it's a very different kind of product than a supply chain or a value chain like cacao or chocolate looks like. So there are very different factors that play into that. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, going into a deeper understanding of these would make academics' lives easier because there's a lot of noise out there in the world about, you know, oh, avoid chocolate from these places or, you know, avoid um, or, or, you know, don't, don't eat this chocolate. It's made with slavery. You know, these very kind of profound generalizations that don't serve anyone 
And it's also often coupled with a, a problematic assumption that, you know, if you can just find the right chocolate, uh, you'll be, you'll meet your salvation. You'll, you'll, you'll have, you know, checked off your moral and ethical box um, without recognizing the fact that this is a profoundly unequal value chain. It was designed to be this way. It continues to be this way in the present day. And there's nothing kind of uh, exciting and glamorous and fabulous about that side of the story of chocolate, no matter how much we might enjoy the flavor. I, I see too often, um, and I, I've seen critiques of this in, in your own writing that I so appreciate, uh, this idea that if something tastes good, we can therefore extrapolate from that to assume that it's good for people, for the environment, and more. When in fact, uh, th those two things don't necessarily overlap in any significant way. Uh, we often ask at FCCI, you know, what is the flavor of good intentions? No matter what the intentions might be of consumers, of chocolate makers, etc., if the effect is not such that the lives of cacao farmers are somehow benefiting or improving, it doesn't actually meet a standard that I think is a, a valuable one to uphold. Right, right. Absolutely. And and for you, is cooking a political act? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so I, I feel like for, for a lot of people, this is such a personal question. Right. Um, it is, it is, but so is pretty much everything that I do feels right. very political. But to say, especially at this particular moment in in the world, you know, everything feels highly political. But it's also because you know the way that we operate in the world is, I think. Uh, we, we have to do things in community. We have to do things in groups. Uh, cooking and food are things that require doing these things as, as groups of people. And that is therefore profoundly political and influenced by policy and politics. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out. Thank you. It's an absolute thank pleasure. You.